Hey, do you like what we do, but want to hear it in Boston? Well, the fucking Avengers, the thing with fucking Chris Evans, you know he went to school around here and shit, right? He fucking grew up around here. Dude, that fucking house in fucking Knives Out Kid that he was in, that's in fucking Weston, Massachusetts. I drove by it. My uncle, my uncle, okay, he's a fucking contractor, all right? He drives a truck. It's got ladders and shit on it, right? He has fucking pictures of Chris Evans working on that fucking movie and that that asshole Ringing Johnson that made that fucking stupid Star Wars movie I hated so much. That guy right yeah he was fucking there too and oh a fucking james bond kid oh shit i fucking saw james bond and shit i had to send a picture of that to my fucking aunt she was like oh my god bring him over here i'm gonna fuck him so fucking hard and i was like auntie we're on a fucking group chat with ma i don't fucking care ma can come over here and fucking fuck him too for all i care and then we went on and on and on and everybody was fucking and now i know too much about my family kid then you should check out this week's sponsor the Chipman Brothers Tangent, talking about literally anything, be it nerd news or the lasting trauma of Catholic school. Chris and Bob Chipman have you covered. Listen to the Chipman Brothers Tangent on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How goes it today, man? Uh, you know, I'm in a, an interesting spot. I actually, I put this out on Twitter yesterday, but I don't really have a Twitter following. I was just, like, exercising it. But I, I had a first. I had uh, a girl I was dating, I just went on, like, two dates with her. But she gave me a, a quote, you're such a nice guy, but... Which is the first time I've ever received that. I've seen it in movies and TV shows all the time. Never actually had it happen before. And I wasn't even mad. It just kind of made me laugh. So because of that, I'm, I'm back on the dating sites today. So, yeah, I'm, I'm mixed. <laughs> Search Axel Wright on all your dating profile. You will not find me under that name there. <laughs> I didn't say they were going to find you. I didn't tell people to search Axel Wright. I'm curious what comes up. Oh, fair enough. All right, Alaric, how are you doing? It's 2020 still. Like, it's good, but there's so much rage-inducing stuff that I, I, I see a little bit of red every time I close my eyes. Well, then, instead of talking about something that makes you rage, let's talk about something that makes us both in awe, which that would be our patrons. Right, Ulrich? Yeah. The people that not only listen to us every week, but want to give us money. And in return, we give them lots of bonuses, but we also say their name at the top of every episode. They are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinyl, Kit Kenny, and Solomansky. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious season, just head on over to patreon.com. For as little as 25 cents an episode, you get early access to everything, and you make sure we can continue broadcasting week to week. And this week, we are back to you know our regularly scheduled kind of programming after... I mean, we actually were back last week, but I'm still thinking that we're just coming off of hiatus. But we're bringing back something that we've done, what, once or twice before? I don't remember. But This is called... the second time we've done this format. All right, it's called The Good, The Bad, and The Franchise, where we basically pick a franchise, and we have a guest, and we discuss the franchise, and we don't really have hard rules for it yet. But speaking of guest, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Seth Decker. I'm the host of the Film Rescue Show. All right. We and because... Yes, you were. Oh, that's right. That was um, yeah, League of Extraordinary Forever. Gentlemen, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> for the movie, not for you guys. You guys were swell. Well, I remember that, like, in the middle of that, I came up with 
because I, I hadn't had a plan before, but in the middle, I came up with the idea of do it like Kingsman, and I'd like it a lot more, and I still feel happy about that idea. It so. was a good pitch. It was a great pitch. I'm waiting on those uh, phone calls. <laughs> but generally speaking, with this format, we ask our guest what franchise they, they want to talk about. Well, generally speaking, when we have a guest, we like to ask them what thing they want to talk about in general. So, Seth, why don't you introduce the listeners to our franchise for the day? Absolutely. I am pleased and ecstatic to bring the Mad Max franchise onto the show. And I'll be something very clear about this. I had seen Fury Road before, and I had thought that I had seen the previous three Mad Max movies. But I thought I had seen it when I was like really young in that time period where I watched a lot of shows on like TV. And now having gone back and rewatched all four of them this last weekend, I'm pretty sure I had not seen the Perverse three, and I'm glad I have now. So I'm oh, good about this. So yeah, well, that's an, I got an interesting story about Road Warrior. We'll get to that one. All right, so let's start this off with very simple because Mad Max is uh, well for anyone who doesn't know, which is a crime, especially considering Fury Road. But for anyone who doesn't know what the franchise is, Seth, why don't you give us a a bit a little overview for for people. Yeah, so um, this is basically a Australian post-apocalyptic setting focusing around a ex-cop in what is either a broken timeline, completely split timeline. There's no time travel or anything, but the movies aren't exactly sequels to each other as much as they are like listening to the oral storytelling of legends about one character, I guess is the best way to put it. It's a really interesting way to present a story for a director to retell across his life as he gets access to uh, to different kinds of filmmaking. And um, it's always stuck with me to to see an, a. It's the same director for every single movie. George Miller has made every single Mad Max. He's making the next one, and it's really cool to watch somebody just kind of like return to their Lego toy chest and make <laughs> cooler things as they become a better engineer. If, uh, if yes. Yeah. If what I've read is correct, he's making the next four, which sometimes can be a scary thing to hear, but I am excited for, considering that the guy can come back to it. the only one that's in production is Furiosa, which, yeah, I'm I'm excited for that, just because, as Axel said, he's an incredible director, and I want to see what he does. Mm -hmm. So what's funny, real quick, before we get off off, uh, into it, into the reads, as it were, is that that idea that each one of them are stories being told by people you know, far in the future. We, we have that as a definitive thing in the second and third movies as an implied thing in the fourth movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a thing in the first movie, which makes me kind of, it, it almost feels like the first movie then is the only thing we quote unquote know happened to Max. Like that is where like knowledge exists. And then the big event happens because he already mentioned the post-apocalypse. And my interpretation, and you can tell me if you, if you disagree, but my interpretation is that Mad Max, the first one, occurs pre- big bomb drop and like when things are devolving and then the ones after that movie take place after like big bomb drops. So, which could imply then that again, the first movie is the only thing we say was we have like real knowledge of and everything else is the oral stories. Yeah, I could, I could get on board with that. Um, I, I've always loved that it's a loose interpretation and that the, this, this may come up later when we get into what we all qualify as the weakest of the franchise. I don't know if there's any wrong answers in this series. If, as much as a cop-out, I know that is. 
I don't know if there's a wrong answer. If you if you take the first Mad Max as being as much oral storytelling, but because it was his first film, he couldn't present those ideas or didn't even have those ideas yet. I, I don't think there's a wrong answer there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because yeah. me and me and Ulrich are both big fans of Norse history, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, steeped in oral traditions. So and we both are very aware of how things can get, for lack of a better term, twisted sure. <laughs> when you have an oral tradition. So, yeah. Yeah. So real quick, I'm going to jump in. We got to talk about a couple elephants in the room. <laughs> OK. The first is the tragic passing of Keyes Bryan, who plays Toe Cutter in the first movie, and Immortan Joe, Joe in Fury Road. So sad. That I had no really idea. Yeah, I had no idea that was the case until I was looking it up like later. But yeah, that was, yeah, he was great. There's there's uh, and, a, apparently a curse that follows me anytime I talk about any kind of film or franchise that someone of uh, the franchise passes away around to be talking about it. I don't know why. I like it's just it's the oddest coincidence, and I blame twenty twenty. This is a fair fair I thing to blame. A, a, a movie list. <laughs> I can make it for you. Also, and this is the other one. We got to talk about the uh, Mel Gibson of it all. <laughs> I, I, I want to be very clear about this. Generally speaking, as a podcast, we don't deal with the kind of discussion that Ulrich very obviously is saying is the elephant when it comes to Bill Gibson for anyone probably young enough not to really be in the know. Uh, Mel Gibson was a pretty good action actor who seemingly was revealed to be a complete nutcase. <laughs> and, and unfortunately is like tainted a lot of things it for makes me. It like kind of hard to go back and watch some of his stuff. Uh, well, here's or... what I'll say. It didn't make it hard for me to watch these because I honestly think Mel Gibson's performance as Max Ro- Rocket I can't pronounce his last name, Rokotowski. Rokotowski. Anyway, Gibson's performance as Rokotowski, I think, is fucking brilliant. Pardon me, I don't know, Seth, how you are in cursing. but Oh, I <laughs> curse all the time. You're Okay, good. He's <laughs> fucking brilliant, especially in Road Warrior. But on the other hand, I can't watch The Lethal Weapon for for these kind of reasons. So, you know, it's just a, it's just a weighing thing, you know? So yeah, and but the it, last thing I will say about this, or go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say, but not at least addressing it because I don't want to have to later on be like I'm praising Mel Gibson, but let's talk yeah. about uncomfortable stuff. So let's just get this out of the way. We don't, and I'm sure Ulrich's going to agree with me. We don't condone any of the the the, the things, and you can look it up yourself. I don't really want to go into it here. That that no, Mel Gibson extracurriculars. Yeah, that that happened yeah. with Mel Gibson. All I'm condoning is that he did a really good job as Mad Max. That's all I'm talking yep. about for purposes of this episode. Yeah. No, I, I wanted to get that out there, and I also wanted to say I love the irony that he's playing a Jewish character. <laughs> That's true. I, 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 I will leave it at that, but I, that was a nice bit of irony. Like, I can enjoy this a little bit more knowing that Max is of Jewish faith. Okay, good. And we're gone. All right, back to the movie and back to the fun stuff. Unless, Seth, you want to dive into that hornet's nest real quick. No, no, I'm, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> okay, well then, uh, well then we, have a, we have a loose amount of key points to go with. So since the first point is our experience with each film, and normally I like to give the guest the, the microphone first, but I want to just this once at least take the, the first mic because my experience with this is actually extremely new comparatively, I think, to, to these two. Because originally when we, we approached set the uh, i believe the franchise i was told was fast and the furious mm-hmm. but i haven't seen literally any of those movies 
and that's a big ask i realized so i was quick to like okay well let's let's shift gears i want to do that one we're gonna well, bookmark fun that fact. One because that's a conversation to have fun fact about two days after you told me that my buddy geo who i go visit like every weekend got the entire collection of fast and the furious <laughs> and they, they've been watching, so I'm like, well, at least I have someone to watch it with when we do do that one. So I, I, I petitioned so to come back to the show when you do. All right, yeah. I, I'm totally pro that. Anyway, like point that. Yeah, point is that I thought I had seen the the first three Mad Max films. I knew I'd seen Fury Road because I saw that in theaters, and I, I I loved it. Easily one of the greatest action movies ever made. Period, in my estimations. But I, so I thought I had seen it because I, when I was young, you know, I was poor and I watched a lot of movies on just like TV, like what was on. And I thought that in that like haze of kaiju flicks that the Mad Max films were somewhere in there. But now <laughs> that I now that I've watched all three of them this last weekend, along with rewatching Fury Road, I am very confident that I had not ever actually sat down to watch them. I might have seen clips of them, which I think is where that those memory haze comes from. And my my first like violent experience it when it comes to watching them was realizing just how insanely accurate the statement is that mad max created the post-apocalypse genre as we know it because like i knew that logically from being on the internet for years but knowing that and seeing it are highly different things particularly watching road warrior being like so that's why all the raiders in the fallout look the way they do <laughs> yeah yeah Good point. Anyway, so that's my my loose experience with these films. It literally goes back to theater several years ago and then last weekend. So, Did you watch them back to back or did you break them up at all? I watched Mad Max 1 uh, on a day and then I waited a couple days and then I watched Road Warrior and then I waited a day and I watched Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road in the same day. Oh, wow. Interesting pairing. Yeah, what a double feature. Well, it was just because, like, of timing. I got a lot of other things going on. I had to find time to do it. Plus, like, Mad Max 1 was available on Netflix, so I was able to just, just do that when I was free. But I had to, like, go and, you know, find the other three. Interesting. All right, Seth, Anyways, you want to give us our quick rundown? Yeah, yeah your experience. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my earliest memory of Mad Max spawns from there was a family video in my very tiny uh, West Virginia town and um, the way that the, the store was laid out, obviously there was the saloon doors back to like a porn room in the back. <laughs> and if you were a kid of my age, you were very curious as to what was going on back there, but you knew you weren't allowed. So I would spend, yep. I would get as close to those doors as I could. And that happened to be the action section. And the, the front cover to the VHS for Thunderdome is burned into my memory. <laughs> and I, just something about that artwork, something about what it was portraying. I knew there was something really, really cool in there, but I didn't get to see it as a child. And it wasn't until um, I got snowed in in a blizzard when I was like 17 or 18 with my sister and my brother-in-law. And he had the trilogy. And I was like, I've never seen these. Um, I'm, I can't go home tonight. I'm obviously spending the night. So... Well, real quick, was that cover? Because I just Google image search it. Max and the kids in front of him, and Tina Turner with her hair like taking up the entire sky. Oh yeah. Okay, making sure I'm doing what I'm talking. Poster. Okay. All right, continue. <laughs> yeah, that just the the look of the the look of the whole thing, the weapons, and and I was like, what is going on here? I, I can't, I don't understand, and I need to know more. So I, I watched the at the time the trilogy because um, 
Fury Road wasn't out yet, uh, like literally back to back to back. And then I borrowed those DVDs from him so I could watch them more. Uh, these probably sit in like some of my more watched film uh, background just because I, I really love revisiting them. And especially as I got into filmmaking, I was like, Mad Max feels like a bunch of just drunk idiots trying to kill themselves. <laughs> um, apparently, George Miller was paying people with beer on that one to use their trucks and stuff in the different oh, uh, awesome. chases. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was the Guinness World Record for like the most profitable mo profitable movie because it was made so cheap. So yeah. anytime I watch it, I'm like, that looks like a really good time. That looks like the best time. And then Road Warrior just kind of dives into this, like it's a blockbuster. Road Warrior is a straight up blockbuster yep. for as cheap as it is. And then, uh, anyways, I saw all those when I was young. They've been important to me. So then when Fury Road came out, I had high expectations. And boy, did it meet all of them and exceed all of them. And holy, I, like Fury Road is quite possibly my favorite movie of time. If not, it's definitely top three. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I've seen the uh, shiny and chrome version. I instantly bought it on Amazon when it came out so that I can revisit it anytime I want um, I, I actually recalibrated my TV to make the colors pop on it more. So it's a more vivid viewing experience. Fury Road is, is just, it's my jam. It is my bread and butter. It is the movie I would pick if I was going to be stuck on an Island for the rest of my life. It's perfect. You know, as a, as a sidebar, me and Ulrich recently were talking about action movies and how they're not actually dead. And mm -hmm. one of the things we mentioned in it, in that discussion, or I don't remember which one was brought up first, was that Fury Road's color palette is such a shot to the arm, especially considering that it's primarily orange and blue, mm -hmm. which the most hacky action movies that exist just use orange and blue. But Fury Road's like, here's how you use this color palette correctly. So, right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Anyway, all right, Ulrich, what's your uh, general experience? So mine is really interesting in that I only saw Road Warrior for the longest time. And the first time I saw Road Warrior, I think I was like seven or eight. Oh, wow. Well, to, be fair, well, to be fair, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, based on my research, that that is because when they released Road Warrior, like they didn't actually, Mad Max didn't actually have like a release in America. Correct. And they and they were worried yeah. that people would see that and be like alienated if they thought Road Warrior was, you know, a sequel that they didn't see the first one. So they just released Road Warrior essentially as a standalone. And most Americans didn't know it was a sequel until literally they got into the movie and started showing like the clips from the first movie. Right. Anyway, continue, sorry. Yeah, no, uh, I watched it with, I think my brothers. And this is another I have to ask my mom. I don't think she's have any memory. She never would have. I don't think she condoned this, but I could have swore she knew we were watching it. And I watched it, and I remember thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, but that car is covered in spikes. And that giant man is awesome. And that's a, is that a razor boomerang? And just loving and then going to school the next day and telling everyone, okay, we're playing Road Warrior today. How does that work? We hang off the playground equipment and we yell at each other. <laughs> So yeah, that I I loved that movie to death, and then I never really watched Mad Max or Thunderdome. And then Fury Road came out, and I remember the first trailer. I was like, "Oh, that looks cool. That's not that's based on that Road Warrior movie. I remember Road Warrior. That was awesome." And then it got closer and closer and built more and more hype. And ironically, I think it came out a day or two before my wedding. So oh, wow. 
all my groomsmen were in town and I'm of course dressing up like, okay, we're going to go see Road Warrior with the guys. It's this big experience. And we went and we saw it and I think Axel, you were there. We came out going, that was the greatest thing ever. I can't I, I, stop shaking. Uh, you know, take this how you will. I take this as a compliment to the movie. I had no idea that I went and saw that with you. My memory was just of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it exists in that place because, it was, like I said, it was the day before. It was like a day or two before my wedding, and it was the best movie I saw this year because it was so awesome. And I just remember going, "Holy shit!" And thinking to myself, "Okay, I need to go back and watch, you know, Mad Max and Thunderdome." And I kind of went into Thunderdome going. I've not heard good things about Thunderdome, but let's watch it. That, that's my experience was I watched it out of order at a way too young an age. But goddamn, I love Fury Road. That is such a good movie. And it is on my list of how old does my daughter need to be before I can show her this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, before I feel like we get nothing too bad in there. Yeah. Well, before we get into details, one thing I wanted to, to mention uh, specifically about Fury Road is that now, because having watched Fury Road and then gone back and watched like the original Mad Maxes, I am a lot more impressed at how much, how do I put this in proper words, at how much Tom Hardy really is playing that character, but also mm -hmm. his own thing. Like, especially yeah. I was watching the first Mad Max and there were just little like physical things that Gibson was doing. They're like, I remember Tom Hardy doing, uh, not exactly that, but something that evokes that. Yeah. And I just, I just want to say that, like, when you replace a, a character in a franchise like that, literally the goal is, all right, you need to evoke the character so that people think you are the same character while still bringing your own thing to the role. And I can think of very, very few instances, in fact, nothing right now, that is a better example of doing that correctly than Tom Hardy taking over as Max. Yeah, I, I think even that movie was kind of written around um, Tom Hardy's physicality and his ability to kind of he knows how to emote um, without speaking. And I mean, look at all of his roles since then. Half of them have masks on, so he yeah. has to. Um, <laughs> but even in this one, he's got the the fucking uh, the, the big old the uh, harness. What mask. do you call that thing? It's a harness. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a yeah. harness over his mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. So the muzzle. There it is. Yeah, the muzzle. There you go. We can't that, bite anybody. <laughs> that this, casting. This, this Max will bite people. Like, he's oh. gone that shit for you. And that's what I love. I, uh, I don't know. We'll get into Fury Road. Now, that, that physicality thing certainly makes sense because he definitely talks less than he did in the, than the character in the previous three movies, but you also totally understand why because yeah. of where he's at in his life. <laughs> and he doesn't, he doesn't talk a lot in the other movies either. No. Yeah. Which I thought was funny because everyone's like, Max doesn't say anything in this movie. Like, he doesn't say anything in any of the movies. Yeah, he barely says. looking bug-eyed. Yeah, at best you might get one full sentence out of him in a scene. He's right. literally, you know, a Fallout yeah, character, and he just wanders in. It's like, I need food, I need, you know, fuel. And they're like, save us. He's like, all right, fine, but I ain't going to like it. Okay, <laughs> so, so to do things. I think that's a good way to bring us to, in the interest of conversational flow, let's just talk movie by movie for a bit here. So Mad Max 1. Let's just focus on Mad Max 1, which right off the bat, I got to say, is like much more of an indie film. I oh, mean, yeah. obviously it literally is, but it also feels like it because the the following yeah. three movies are like, you know, world-building, genre-defining, crazy, blockbustery kind of things. And then Mad Max 1 is pretty much just a a character drama that turns into a revenge story. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I like Mad Max, but it is interesting going back to that immediately following Fury Road and seeing how much smaller the start is. Yeah. But at the well, same time, you can see the pieces. Like, it's mm-hmm. all there. The pieces are there. And it's not a big bombastic action, but it's a really, really, really good character piece. Well, in watching the world kind of, you know, hanging on by a string and then watching it also play out in uh, microcosm in this character. Yeah, well, what weirded me out is that literally Mad Max, that designation, doesn't appear until the last 18 minutes of the film. Like, I yeah. literally, mm-hmm. when, because this is a, a 93-minute film, I think. I, I, I was on Netflix, I was able to just see, like, where it was. And yep. when when Max goes mad, it was literally the last 18 minutes, including credits. So it's that's really not most of what the movie is. And it's funny, because when I first watched it, I didn't actually like it that much. I, mostly I thought yeah. it was really slow. Uh, but after watching the other movies, I had this weird feeling that whether or not I like the first one is irrelevant in that that first one is required for me to like the second one as much as I do, Ooh. if that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, because like, so for anyone who has, we're not going to like try to spoil there's not really things to spoil you watch these movies i could spoil everything and still say watch these movies because they're mostly like an experience you have so you know uh so the first movie right it basically follows this is it again in my estimation this is happening before the apocalypse but like right on the cusp like things are going downhill like there's a enough of society left that you have police but (laughs) we haven't reached uh, whatever the tipping point is yeah but at the same time the police station is itself like a wreck it only has like 10 guys in it so like things are bad things are definitely on the decline and max is this cop called a bronze he's the best like driver in the 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 group and the movie starts with him basically causing a certain guy called the knight rider to die who's this uh you know gang member guy in a car he gets him in a car crash and he dies and so his gang shows up they spend most of the movie terrorizing the people close to max eventually well killing several of them and then at the end when the the last you know straw on the camel's back and then max goes on a revenge murder spree against them there's your loose plot (laughs) and there are extended canon presuppositions that max goes mad as the bombs are being dropped um Hmm. like he's literally a representation for the world around him and his snap happens when basically he figures there's no there's not going to be any repercussions. Um, that's not implied in the movie, again, because this is launching a franchise and this is a very young filmmaker making a very cheap movie. Um, but if you go into the the video game that came out the same year as Fury Road and some of the uh, other comics, the implication is like he's breaking at the same time. And also this is when the world switches from like realism into surrealism. And, you know, that does make a lot of sense because the, the last 18 minutes of the film turn into, you know, it almost struck me more like a music video than a yeah. movie at that point. Yep. How, like, out there it kind of gets. Yeah. So, well, that's the bit also, where you see Miller's edition. For the record. <laughs> yep. The, the last bit is where you see the idea, you see the chase scenes, you see the big stuff. It's like, okay, if this guy gets money, the crazy shit he's going to pull off, you, you see it there in the car chases and the big stunts. And... At the same time, you also see the cheapness of it. Oh, well, yeah. this is a this is a little nitpick. I don't actually hold this against the movie at all. But Mad Max One makes 
somewhat frequent use of what I call the sand wipe, which is a certain transition that starts from the left side and like kind of wipes uh, off to the right side. I associate it most with Star Wars, which is yeah. the only franchise that can get away with it for yeah. me. So, but yeah, that's just a, um, a, an attribute of him not having a lot of money and this being 1979 when it came out. So. Right. Yeah. It was what, two years after the first Star Wars that was also using those wipes? I mean, they're. They're referencing the things that they're seeing in theaters and enjoying. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that old, but really, I, yeah. I'm trying not to think about the passage of time. Yeah, it, it was, was uh, for the record, for the record, it's Mad Max is 1979, Road Warriors 81, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be could be 82, I think it's 81. Beyond Thunderdome is 85, and then Fear Red's 2015. I had these moved up several years in my mind of timeline-wise, just because I don't, I don't like thinking about how far long ago the 80s actually were. <laughs> the thing is, I, I'm i going to say this because I feel like this is the kind of statement that will make Seth happy, but watching the three old ones, or older, I hate saying it that way, but watching those ones, I like them so much that I was like, I'm going to get on the wiki and just start looking at trivia. I want to know more about stuff that I don't know yeah, about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, that is a sign of a great movie. You're like, I need to know more now. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, we uh, Ulrich mentioned a while back that you know the actor who played a character in Fear Road and played a character in Mad Max. That's the the big bad of of Mad Max, the toe cutter. But one thing that the entire franchise does well, and you can see it in Mad Max, is uh, I don't know what the the character that there's there's a specific movie character that is most associated with this, and he's escaping me right now. I, I like to refer to him as the body bag character, referencing. The, the kid from the end of Karate Kid who says, mm-hmm. put him in a body bag. And what, I, and what I mean when I say this is a movie that has characters that don't do a whole lot or don't seem to be like on screen a whole lot, but you remember them like really strongly. Oh, and, I like that term. Okay, I have another character that I associate the same way that's clicking for me. Uh, which character are you thinking of? The the guy from uh, Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, at the end, where he says it's with uh, top our top men, top men. Yeah, Just, yeah. <laughs> that line delivery, I was like, I don't know who the fuck you are, but you're a character for sure. Y- you and know so, his scene, you know his line. Yep. And the entire Mad Max, all four movies are filled with characters that fit this for me in the best possible yep. way. I mean, Toe Cutter is technically like our big bad, but he really only gets like two scenes where he gets to do a whole lot. Meanwhile, we've got uh, Bubba, right? Or is it Billy? I don't know it was a B name, but <laughs> who is this like his weird lieutenant guy who's like really calm and, and really smart. And then we've got, you know, is it Joe, little Joe or little John? It's J name. See, the thing is, that's why I put them in these categories because I can't remember their names, but I remember them and their <laughs> personalities stand out. Oh, I'm terrible so at character names, so I can't help you here. Well, I mean, I mean, even Mad Max named his own son Sprog, so like they're not Which, going by good naming schemes at this point. <laughs> well, for anyone who doesn't know, because I didn't know this until I looked at the wiki, Sprog is Australian slang for a baby or a kid. Yep. yep. So, so it's basically naming your baby baby <laughs> boy. Or boy. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, jeez. So here's something I want to get your opinion on. I, I am convinced. Well, my, my point, sorry, real quick before you, okay. before you do that, was that even in Mad Max 1, when I think of Toe Cutter, I think of his his lieutenant. I'm just going to say Bubba because I'm pretty sure Billy. I don't know. He's the B guy. I think of Joe, the guy who at the very end, or Goose, Jimmy the Goose, who 
is amazing. And I, I have a friend whose nickname is Goose, and now that has, takes on a whole new connotation for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, but or even the the chief. The chief gets what like one scene where he gets to chew the fat a little bit, where he's talking to Max. But like he's such a great. It's such a great scene, and uh, or the old lady who who protects uh, Max's wife with a with a shotgun against this motorcycle gang. Like this franchise just loves to ha- make these characters like super. And literally, this entire thing I'm talking about culminates in my favorite version of this character in Fury Road. And if you have seen it, you'll already know what character I'm talking about. But we'll get there. So, <laughs> so no one fun thing I can't I can't confirm this, but I will say it with reasonable certainty that Toe Cutter is the inspiration for the bad guy Nine Toes in the Borderlands game, which is 100% built off the back of Mad Max. Well, you know, I heard, uh, I was talking with, my, with Geo, uh, Denim, uh, and he he had never seen Mad Max, and he asked me, is that the, like, diesel punk? And I had not heard the term diesel punk, but it made sense to me. I was like, yeah, that, that probably makes sense. I went and looked up diesel punk afterwards, and I don't think Mad Max really qualifies as diesel punk, because diesel punk involves, like, a futuristic no. kind of thing. But... Borderlands yeah. is definitely diesel punk. So there's there's a connection there. So Yeah. But no, I, I saw like the first time I remember going back and playing uh Borderlands after, you know, watching Mad Max, I'm like, I think this is a reference. This has to be a reference. Oh, those and games I, are so chock full of references. And that's what I mean, is this like and props to Mad Max that the bad guy of the first movie is being referenced in this big triple A game. That also, again, when I first saw Fury Road, I would describe it to people as, it's like if Borderlands was a movie, that is what Mad Max or Fury Road kind of felt like, at least in the early trailers. All right. Well, so I did my kind of little thing. Oh, did you do the kind of little thing? Seth, how would you say your thoughts on Mad Max 1 really come out? Um, It's definitely, it's a must watch, I think, Uh, especially for anyone who is getting into like how films are made this this kind of movie movies like clerks um these kinds of movies the uh, the wires show you know what i mean like the the aspects of filmmaking kind of shine through and you can take that as a negative you can take that as you know poor filmmaking or something like that but to me it's really inspirational and so i watch I watch each of these movies for different reasons. They scratch different itches for me. And the first Mad Max is definitely my like, oh, I see what they were going for. Like, you can imagine the big budget version of the first Mad Max. And it's very similar to Fury Road. Not quite. It, it, would, be, it would be a different movie with the setting. But you can definitely see what they were aiming for. And I think that enthusiasm, like Mad Max gets me really hype the first the first movie gets me really hyped to like grab a camera and run outside and like drive way too fast and film stuff that could kill me (laughs) you know i love the idea that mad max one is the action movie equivalent of what clerks is for like a dramatic comedy yeah that 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 fits really well in my brain now that you've kind of said that so yeah it's like there you can see that they're not perfect but those imperfections show you how movies are made, and then suddenly you can look at movies that are maybe with a shinier veneer and still go, "Oh yeah, but that might have been a that might have been uh, you know recorded later on, or that might have been a line that they didn't get on set, and that's why the lips don't match." And suddenly those those big issues with the with the first of these generations turn into the the fine tuned stuff that you see in other movies. All movies are 
made very similarly. Um, it's just they they get better at covering up the those little asynchronies. But I think that is what makes it charming. I, I, it's a very very charming movie for the seventies. Jesus Christ! Yeah, I, I do think it's yeah, funny I that I, I like I like Mad Max more the first one. The more I think about it, and I wasn't really into it the first time. But I will say, like part of that is I had these two nitpicks, and they are completely that nitpicks. And one of them I think is intentional. One is from a screenwriter perspective, which is there are like four times in this movie where Max splits up with his family in a dangerous situation. And I was just like, stop separating from them. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, that and twice in the movie they do a thing where Max is chasing someone and he's literally like bumper to bumper with them. And then they're in a car wreck and he's not there. And again, I think that's more of a stylistic one, but it was like a an odd thing for me visually. <laughs> right. And and that's just lacking the ability to grab the three extra angles to show that like he tapped their tire and pulled away or you know the, the they're yeah. so it's so bare bones that you're just getting the kind of the the cliff notes of the action scene in visual form. It's all the money they got for they they ran out of beer, okay? Right. <laughs> there was only so much beer in the country of continent of Australia to spend and well you know, they ran out. It's unfortunate. Okay, so uh, so next on our list, right, The Road Warrior, which, as I said, for a lot of Americans, was the only Mad Max movie because mm-hmm. of how marketing works. Yep. And is a definitely a lot more, like, if someone told me that the post-apocalypse genre was created by another film that came out before Mad Max, I would be moderately surprised. But, it, but like, it, it really seems to me watching it like, yeah, that's where all this visual iconography seems to have come from is this movie <laughs> so I, and I it's it's okay. kind of like a it's kind of a star wars case where like there were space movies before star wars but then star wars made space movies the thing um there's a there's another boy that like yeah another boy another movie that could exist in the mad max world called a boy and his dog that was made i think like five oh, years previous. i know that one and it's mm-hmm. yep. des- desert setting. There's a talking dog in it, so like it's a little it's different. It's a weird ass movie. It is. Yeah. It's a very strange movie. I'm may may not be my recommend, but I think <laughs> I think um, Road Warrior was like the culmination of the the predecessors. That like, oh no, this is the tentpole. This is where we're dropping our anchor and saying this is post apocalyptic. You got to do it like this. Yes, everyone wears spikes and feathers. And well, again, if I'm, I'm just going to keep this thread going for myself when it comes to like characters that you remember, obviously we've got humongous, which is a wonderful <laughs> name humongous. for a villain. And, and they're definitely going with a, an interesting visual aesthetic with him and his crew uh, and his yeah. and his psychotic. Uh, is it Wex? I think it's Wex is his psychotic mohawked like dog person and his. <laughs> And I actually read online that what Miller was going for in that movie was to take the three aspects of a classic narrative villain and separate them into three distinct characters. The mm. the, the physical villain, the uh, mental villain, and the insanity villain. The physical villain is obviously Lord Humongous. The mental villain is his um, herald, the guy who's doing like all the, the speaking. And the right. insanity villain is Wex, who is much more the direct conflict with with max since he fights with max like several times so <laughs> but i i I'd never heard of that idea of, of the three like aspects of a villain being put described that way and i don't necessarily know if i agree with it but it's certainly interesting 
thing to play with in your in your narrative. I agree. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, uh, what, what's great about Road Warrior, is, like among many other things, is like from like right in the beginning when we have just Max doing what we would come to know as Mad Max things with you know <laughs> car chases and car explosions. And honestly, though, I think I was sold. I don't know how to explain this, but when Max comes across the gyrocopter guy and he you know turns the tables on him with with the dog that whole scene is probably my favorite scene in the movie and for anyone who hasn't seen it basically this guy's got a crossbow on max like max quote unquote falls into a trap and then proceeds to spend the next like four minutes trying to get his way out of it and the the gyrocopter guy seems to be moderately intelligent like at one point you know, he's going to steal Max's gas. Max is like, go ahead and try. There's a bomb there that will go off. I was like, all right, well, then you turn it off. And Max goes to the put center and he goes, oh, don't be pulling a weapon. And the camera shows that he was pulling a knife from under it. So then he goes and flips a switch. And then, like, the guy's going to steal his car. And then suddenly the dog, Max's dog, pops out and flips the tables. And that entire sequence works so well for me. And then the immediate following, there's just something about the way Max delivers these lines where like the guy's like, all right, how do I not get killed by this guy that just turned the tables on me? Uh, gasoline. I know where gasoline is. It's <laughs> like, yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me where. <laughs> I, this is just the deepest cut that I could possibly do. And I think you guys will enjoy it. Have either of you seen the extended version of the return of the King Lord of the Rings once? Yes. Okay. Do you remember the mouth of Sauron? That fucking yes. ugly, <laughs> that's the gyro captain bruce spence really wow cool same guy now i have two weird bits of trivia one the mouth of sauron and two he was the gyrocopter guy in road warrior there you go i will also say and i don't want to mon monopolize the time here but now that i've seen mad max and the road warrior and even though i am liking mad max more like the road warrior is now tied in my opinion for best sequel to a movie ever like terminator 2 has always been the the easy answer for me with Empire Strikes Back being close, but the level of difference between Mad Max and Road Warrior is palpable. Oh yeah, and you can just see yeah, him. You're not wrong. Yeah, and you can just see Miller taking these skills that he, even just over like two years, taking a bit more budget, having the freedom to do these kind of things, and just the what he accomplishes with it is amazing in comparison. Oh, and again, that's yeah. not a that's not a critique against Mad Max. It's just the difference is insane. Oh, yeah. No, let's talk about the hat trick that that is, because more often than not, you see an indie director get handed more money and they don't know what to do with it. And it makes a bad movie like it is kind of the thing you see a lot, especially, you know, five years ago when studios were nabbing uh, independent directors off their first film, giving them money and we get fan forced. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. But Miller goes, OK, I have more money. That means I can do all those crazy stunts I always wanted to do. I can buy more beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and, though. I mean, because the budget wasn't that much bigger. I think it was maybe like four or five times what he had on the first one, which uh, uh, equivalent today is like the cost of a A24 movie. Like he was not it, it's not a big budget by any film means. And so you can tell he just knew. Well, now I now I can relax in those areas that I was kind of tightening my belt on in the first one. I can have a costume department that isn't let's just make people's home clothes look ugly or I can, you know, have a, a, a set and a setting and, and build a post-apocalyptic, you know, kind of gas town. By the way, just as a sidebar in 19 remember this is about 1980, roughly the Mad Max one budget was four hundred thousand dollars U.S., 
or no, Australian, sorry. And Mad Max 2 was 4.5 million. So we had roughly a 10 factor increase in budget. There you go. 10 factor. Yeah. Um, but even, even then that's like the, that factor of 10 versus like the jump from 4.5 to what, what was it like 165 on Fury Road? Yeah, hold on. Uh, Thunderdome got ten million, so it only doubled the budget for Thunderdome. And then, yeah, Fury Road is a hundred and about one hundred eighty-five million is the high end. So, yeah, big big increase. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, props to him changing his budgets by a factor of ten basically every time he made a movie. Um, but it shows in the quality. Like he he doesn't drop production quality. I'll put it that way. When we get to Thunderdome, we'll have more to say. I'm sure. Yeah, no. Well, that's why. Just... That's why, uh, Seth. Real quick, I want your your general thoughts on. This is the guest. I want your general thoughts on Road Warrior. Um, Road Warrior is my like, my. It is my favorite to watch of the the old ones. I, I still hold like Fury Road mm-hmm. on a pedestal at this point. But of the of the original, yeah. you know, seventies eighties run, this is my favorite by a long shot. And I think that this. Because I didn't see this one until, uh, you know, my teens and didn't really know or understand like this genre at all. It it really cemented what that is like you, you were saying earlier, um, the Fallout games, Borderlands, just all the things that were inspired by this. I was seeing those inspirations as they happened and they all reference back to this movie. So this is kind of like this is a um, like a foundation block. This one's kind of an unshakable column of the post-apocalyptic genre and i've I, I think fury road was the first movie to outdo this one in my mind and i'm i love post-apocalyptic movies but when you get shit like priest or uh you know god some of the movies that we got in the in the 30-year interim here hmm. um yeah sorry a lot of them were just competing to be about as good as uh road warrior for me I will say when Road Warrior started and I realized that his outfit is literally Fallout 3's leather outfit, mm-hmm. it was an interesting moment for me. But Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you're realizing the cultural impact this one little Aussie movie has had in shaping not only cinema, but pop culture. Right. Oh, and also, I, I, I mentioned several times, but Gyro Captain guy is even another character that's like, I mean, he gets quite a bit of screen time, but he still strikes that that area for me where he literally doesn't have a name. He's called Gyro Captain, like in the credits. Yep. And and he's really fun to watch, just like bouncing off Max. I love he's the only motherfucker that's like, everyone has cars. I'm going to take to the air. <laughs> Perfect. Like that's the, you're not a bad idea. I mean, watching like this motherfucker, he knows what's going on. Okay. And I just remember, you know, first time I watched as a kid, like that guy's dropping bombs. Cool. It's funny because really, I feel like there are only like four characters in all of these movies that are like good characters that don't fall into my brain space uh, of what I was talking about with the body bag kind of character. And I say that is a good thing is what I mean that as like how in this movie, the, the leader of the, the gas people, like, I don't know his name. I don't have any idea what his name is, but, and he's got like the one scene where basically he has a verbal fight with, with Max, but he has, you know, the, the balls to like, you know, physically altercate with them you know takes a like a crossbow bolt and keeps on going like oh, he's a cool guy <laughs> yeah i i like that the so even I, the I think, the like oh, go ahead. Uh, i like that the good people uh with air quotes you know what i mean like the maybe more benevolent people of the wasteland aren't like pussies 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. That no, this is a hellscape. Yeah, exactly. Like you got to be hard to live in this area. So the I, the fact that you're still good speaks more to your character than like the presentations we get in maybe you know future apocalyptic movies that are like, oh, it's like the good old lady that lives up the street that's living through the apocalypse, and it's like, no, she died. Like a hundred percent, she died. Yeah. We literally, we literally first see the the quote unquote good people in Road Warrior roasting bandits alive with a flamethrower. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean, Max is a great example, and I think he kind of serves, like, especially in the in how he shifted from the first movie to this, it's kind of this great, like, and this is the way society is. We went from hanging by a thread to, listen, I'm going to murder you to get some gas if I have to. Don't <laughs> fuck with me. Well, Road Warrior also sets the tone for what would become the norm for Mad Max in a good way, which is Max is a character who, while he is a good person because he was a cop and he still feels like a kind of responsibility, generally speaking, he wants nothing to do with anyone. He falls into situations that he didn't want to be part of, then he tries to get away, then either he literally can't, as in the case here in Road Warrior, or what is actually good about him keeps him you know, around. But most of the time it's because he literally can't. I mean, in, in this movie, he he does the, he like gets in the truck, he gets his car, tries to leave. Cause he's like, I don't, I don't care about you. Just you're on your own. I have my own business. His car gets destroyed. Essentially he makes out alive. He's like, well, now I don't have a choice to, but to hope that your plan works so that I can get out alive. And it's an interesting dynamic. Cause like he is our hero, but he's also like, I am a survivor. This is what I do primarily. And just because I'm getting pulled in these other people's things that make me a hero doesn't make me a hero. Right. No, I think he's a great reluctant hero in that he's good not because he chooses to do these things, but because he he kind of he inadvertently does good things. Right. And he doesn't even even then he wouldn't do it again. Like if he had if he went back, he would not repeat his act. Yeah, I, right. like, I like the moral question posed by the movies of, like, in in the worst possible situation, would you still even attempt to do the good thing? And in the uh, in the interest of time, though, let's move on to Beyond Thunderdome, yes. which, like Ulrich, I had heard that people didn't like this one as much. And having seen it, the only criticism I really have is that it's too long. Like, mm. the, the first two movies are 90 minutes. They're, like, a solid sleek. And even Mad Max, which is kind of slow, still doesn't wear out a welcome by being a really, you know, good 90 minutes. But but Beyond Thunderdome is, like, a solid two hours. And I really feel like they could have shorn that up by 20 minutes uh, in a number of in a ways. And it just would have made the whole thing feel tighter. But I love the characters. Master Blaster's great. Tina Turner's doing a kick-ass job. Like... Mel's still putting in a great job as Max in a second sequel. Even, like, the kids, I think, are really fascinating. They don't make any sense to me because of how much time has gone by in the apocalypse, but that's a different thing entirely. They're doing fine jobs. <laughs> well, and again, that's where we get into the surrealism of how long has it been since this stuff happened, what countries were affected at different times. They flew in on a, um, on a jet, so uh, there, there's... I think Thunderdome, its biggest advantage is that it asks questions about this world and doesn't shy away from answering them a little more surreal or a little less solidly as maybe lore-heavy people would want. I will say that the yeah. actual Thunderdome scene, the, the title scene, 
didn't go quite the way I expected. I had no idea what the bungee thing. Like I thought, okay, you're gonna go into a you know arena and fight, and then they have like bungee cords attached to them, which completely changed the nature of the fight. And <laughs> I was like, this is insane and really neat and weird. <laughs> so, and insane, yeah. really neat and weird kind of sums up my feelings on on Thunderdome. Mm. That sums up Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not a bad movie, but it's not as good as Road Warrior. Right. And I think part of it is, and the strengths that are, you know, Mad Max, Road Warrior, Fury Road, is small scope. Very contained, narrow, focused story, cast of characters. This one, it wants to do a lot, and I don't think that's this franchise's strength. Well, a lot might be over-exaggeration. Really, what Beyond Thunderdome is doing is expanding the conflict from one conflict, which is what the previous two movies primarily did, to two conflicts. Whereas in Mad yeah. Max 1, we have a revenge story with Toecutter's gang. In Mad Max 2, we've got Humongous's gang and Wine Gas. In Beyond Thunderdome, we have equivalently the Master Blaster and, like, Auntie story, as well as the kids having their little society in the desert story that have nothing to do with each other until they do. Yeah, no, it's right. two movies in one and it's to the detriment of the movie. I will say all the good parts are still there. I mean, Mel Gibson is still doing a great job playing his character. The, you still get the insane car chases, the insane action. It still has a great aesthetic. It still feels like we're living in this world. It's insanely quotable. Like, yeah. holy shit, is this movie quotable? Uh, yeah, I mean, two men enter, one man leaves. But oh, right. it, it's not working on some level that I can't put my finger on, you know? Well, like I said, for me, the, the big thing is runtime. When you, yeah. I, I feel like, really, honestly, even having the two different stories, if you just would have shrunk down some of the, like, desert walking scenes and stuff like that and shaved off about 20 minutes, I think you have a much tighter product uh seth what, what do you think about the movie in general so this is the this is the return of the jedi of this trilogy i think that i i agree it's overly long it's kind of overly complicated in in what it's going for uh it is kind of two movies smashed into one in the same way return of the jedi is the job of the hut rescue and then the rest of it the this i i love i love how 80s it is i think the the earlier mm -hmm. films really captured the end of the 70s this movie really captures the 80s I never thought about that that's that's very accurate yeah yeah I mean, heck, having I mean, tina turner is your, turn is your headliner <laughs> exactly exactly and she's I, having a blast look, look, i do not want to touch her she is one of the best parts of this movie i i can't imagine anyone having a bad time making these movies beyond they're in the desert just the, this whole the whole series of films seems just like getting hired to just have a really, really, really good time. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that here soon. True. <laughs> um, yeah. The, I think the, the reason this one doesn't hold up as much for me is because it also suffers from that eighties thing of, yes, it's a real set, but it looks more like play props, like props for a stage show than it does props for a film. They it kind of like exists in this built onto way instead of built up from way, and so this movie kind it's of got really the water world problem. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Speaking of post apocalypse movie, 
yeah. um, that, that are overly long and have too many wild characters <laughs> having a good time. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. very, very similar. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the reason this one always pops out to me is like the one that I, it's not I don't want to visit it. Anytime someone brings it up or God forbid somebody brings up that Rick and Morty episode and I'm like, okay, wait, but they're not doing it this good. All right, let's 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 go back and look at Thunderdome real quick. Uh, it just well, I want, yeah, I want to be very clear. I really like Thunderdome. I do, but yeah, you know, there's there's issues. So if the first two are eights, this is a like solid seven. I I don't hate it by any means. I think it's just the the change in visual palette that again changed drastically by the last movie. That that change for me was just to the point that it it feels like plastic. It's got a very like plastic veneer. Uh, and that that that's what really grabs me every time. It's just I'm I love the stuff. Anytime he's like down underground with Master Blaster and Pig Killer, and like I love the underground stuff. I love the stuff out in the desert. I love Tina Turner's apartment. That that was a really cool set. I the Thunderdome doesn't quite work for me, and that's kind of the crux of the movie. It doesn't even come back. Well, I will say since the title of the movie is Beyond Thunderdome. True. When the, Thunder, when the Thunderdome scene ended at like the half hour mark of a two hour movie, I was like, well, I guess that means the rest of this movie is what really matters because we are beyond the Thunderdome scene. <laughs> it's true. And and that is maybe where it gets more interesting. It's where we finally get these hints of the kind of the the oral tradition. Uh, it, it's really it's it's like started in Road Warrior. But then when we get here, it's like this is definitely people telling a story, even to the point that they have Bruce Spence come back to be the the pilot from from barter town like just like you know that there's a pilot in max's story and you know that there's a roving gang and you know that there's car chases and but the the specifics are allowed to kind of shift and falter and and things like that yeah you know i was wondering at first is that supposed to be the same character and it's not but no you could easily argue that the reason why something like that exists is these could be two different like groups of people's tellings of the same stories. Right. And like with actual mythology, things just get kind of shared, like how Ostara in Celtic is, you know, Easter, or Ostara in Germanic is Easter in Celtic, and these kind of things where like, oh, this character is the, the gyrocopter captain here, but he's the plane captain here, so. Right, because if it's the feral kid telling that's... the story, he met the, the gyrocopter, whereas if it's the, uh, what was her name, Savannah? Uh, yeah. If it's if it's her telling the story, then maybe she doesn't know that it was a gyrocopter. She just knows that it was a pilot. And so when you insert pilot, you automatically think plane. And you can see how these like the but the changes of the story don't matter. Like it it is what it is. And it's telling the the legend of, you know, Mad Max. And maybe that's the problem this movie has. It's, I don't want to say overly ambitious because I don't think. He, I do he think it is ambitious. <laughs> it's, it's just, but it's like he's got a lot of great ideas here and maybe and maybe it was the fact that he thought this was the last one because they weren't yeah. going to do past the trilogy so he wanted to get all his ideas out there and it's like hold on hold on hold on you have so many other great ideas just pick one just focus in on this maybe just hone this because the whole the roving hero of max is an amazing concept mm. and how you know, he's an unreliable narrator and the story's kind of unreliable. That's good. Post-apocalypse, like, you know, the want, the basically the Jesus of the apocalypse. That's really kind of cool. But I also, it work crammed in around everything else. 
I will also say that Beyond Thunderdome established for me a thought that there are, in my head, two graphs that follow these movies. One is the graph of what we're going to call human civilization, and the other is the graph of Max's mind. Mm. So the Max's mind graph is basically an oscillation where at the... Uh, it starts off in a high place and goes down over the course of Mad Max, then starts off at a low place in Road Warrior and goes up by the end where he finds, like, humanity, uh, essentially, again. Then at the beginning of Beyond Thunderdome, it's at the the bottom again, and we get another, like, all right, grow in humanity kind of thing. And then it's and the beginning of Fury Road is at the lowest it ever is, with him literally losing his mind. And then, so we have this oscillation going on. Meanwhile, with the human civilization thing, it's much more of a in a, a reverse bell curve mm. where we start off at the highest point in the, the whole series of Mad Max. And then it just goes progressively down until in beyond Thunderdome, we don't have gasoline anymore. At least that's the evidence we're given. That's why they're using methane instead. But then in Fury road, we're some point later where we're coming back up where people are making green, where people have are, are refining oil again, which is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective. But we have like civilization re creating in, in a way so the fact but the fact that beyond the dome is from what i can tell basically the bottom of this curve makes everything feel interestingly bleak <laughs> yeah i agree I, I i think i would like to see that have been executed better i would have liked to see that but what we got is not bad by any means and i will still watch this movie anytime i will yes. say that Going into this conversation, I thought I was going to say that Mad Max 1 was the weakest. But the fact that, as I said at the beginning, I think Mad Max 1 is required in order to be as invested in Max going forward. Like, I don't think I would have been as invested in Max in Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome without Mad Max 1, personally. So I do think that Beyond Thunderdome is probably the weakest. But as Seth said, that's like saying that it's a 7 out of 10 compared to 8s out of 10. So <laughs> Yes. No, I don't know. I'll, I'll say my, my final thoughts when we get to the last movie in the franchise. Let's talk Fury Road, gentlemen. Well, we've already basically, we can't help but keep talking about Fury Road, but I think, as I literally just said, to me, Fury Road is a, a 10 out of 10. Seth said yes. that he puts on this pedestal. It's like, I, I feel like Fury Road is literally George Miller, like, perfecting his skills over time and then being like, I mean... Not to say that he's reached a peak. I don't ever want to claim any artist has reached a peak, but if it's not a magnum opus, I don't know what a magnum opus is. Happy so. Feet 2, obvious. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, for anyone who doesn't know, he also directed Happy Feet 2 and Babe, Pig in the City. <laughs> yeah, the guy that did uh, Road Warrior did Babe. Childhood classics for me, ironically and enough. That, and that's what makes him such a, I think, a, a real workman while still being being a visionary filmmaker. Usually filmmakers land in the two. You're either kind of a, a craftsman, you're a blacksmith, you know how to make a movie, or you have these auteurs that know how to visualize a, a story. Not often do you get both, and Fury Road feels like the culmination of just him hammering away, away at this sword and then finding out it's Excalibur and it's got magic in it, and then just beelining for the for the finish line of just like oh yeah nope nope i got this this is i know not only do i know how to do this functionally i know how to make it look the way it needs to look to elevate it into this like legendary status because this is kind of also the culmination of the legend of mad max so far it's presented the most um surrealist 
of all of the movies. It's presented in the the widest range of palette as far as color goes. It's got the biggest cast. It's got all the biggest stuff in it. And he, George Miller, even said himself, he didn't reapproach the canon of Mad Max to make this movie. He just said, no, I'm just going to tell another Mad Max story. What's funny about that is that Fury Road is the only one of the four that, at least in my estimations, has more than two main characters. Oh, because yeah. Because everyone before it, it's like, it's Mad Max is the main character and then one other person, usually the villain, right? Because, like, Toe Cutter's the closest thing to uh, a secondary main killer, character in the first one, really. Sure. Um, and then in Road Warrior, it's like, Humongous isn't really not a main character. It's really just Max and the Gyro Captain. And then in the third one, it's it's just Max, really. Like, maybe Tina Turner's character. But then in Fury Road, we still have Max and Immortan Joe as main characters, but everyone knows that Furiosa is basically more of a main character than Max is, and Nux is equally as much a main character as Max is. Yeah. So this is kind of like, it takes the ambition of Thunderdome, like in telling a bigger story, and it it makes it work. Because it's a bigger story, but it's also way more in line with the original Mad Max in A to B plot. Well, and you know what it does way better than Thunderdome? Thunderdome assumes you need things explained to you. Fury Road mm-hmm. says, there's this place called Gastown, and guess what the fuck they have in Gastown? <laughs> Is yeah. it anything like Bullet Town? Wild. Just insane that the place called Bullet Town is the place with all the guns. Just, (laughs) I love, I love that his storytelling in Fury Road is, no, you're fucking smart enough to keep up. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make it like it's a kid telling you this story. Oh yeah, and then the, because Gastown probably has a name, right? But if if it's some kid, as we've seen, it's mostly kids retelling these stories. Some kid's just gonna be like, oh yeah, and then the Gastown and the Bullet Town, or Bullet Farm, uh, Bullet Farm, right? Yes, Bullet Farm. Yeah, Bullet Farm. Which actually conjures a really interesting image for me. But you know, it's funny because you talk about kids telling the story. I think Tropic I was, Thunder, but that's another topic. <laughs> I was I was literally just thinking about how like the character designs have evolved too. Like, don't be wrong, I love the Road Warrior aesthetic with the mohawks and fur and stuff like that. But a Morton Joe having essentially like the plexiglass armor and the skull face, and then the the Bullet Farmer guy literally having like a a toupee of bullet bandoliers. It's just the nonsense is wonderful. <laughs> oh yeah. Yes. And it, it's, it's such it visual storytelling. The top. Yep. No, it is 100% visual storytelling, which is something else people bitched about. Like they don't say anything. They don't need to say anything. Everyone is acting their asses off in this. To tell well, you like I said, the, 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 look. the, um, the, for me, the culmination, the greatest version of the body bag character in any movie ever occurs in this movie with, crazy guitar guy the doof warrior yeah the doof warrior the a blind guy not just blind he has no eyes who's just in a a, a jumpsuit with a double neck guitar that acts as a flamethrower bungee corded into a a monster truck that's also a soundstage whose only job makes no sense the warband that's his only job (laughs) oh and it is so awesome like oh i'm just excited thinking about it and and that even goes to show how much he's progressed as a director, George Miller, because he's learned about things like diegetic sound. Why not just put the score of your movie in your movie as an amazing visual for your movie? Wouldn't yeah. that be fun? I just I love I love those little things that you can tell uh, since 1985 that he just 
he picked up and he learned and he, he's been perfecting his craft. The reason the CGI looks so good in that movie because he made two CGI movies for his kids in the interim. And for even fun! Then, and even then, he was smart enough to really be choosy about when he uses his CGI. It's basically like two things in the movie. Like, Fury Road got a lot of popular buzz for being extremely practical, and it is. Like, watching the behind the scenes of them doing the pole thing is oh, insanity. Oh, insane. Because, <laughs> but still, like, when he does use CG with the sandstorm, it looks amazing. <laughs> so. No, yeah. oh, and the score. Can we talk about the score for a second to this movie and how it just gets it gets you in? It gets your heart pumping, and you're like, "And we're off, and we're racing, and I shall ride forever, shiny and chrome." Well, I want to say too that for me, literally the most probably the most important narrative decision because I think the most important thing about Fury Road simply is how it looks. Like I, I you know, that is reductive, but you got to be honest. Call space. It's a fate. beautiful movie, but it is I do so think beautiful. I do think from a narrative perspective, though, that literally the most important decision that I think they make is Nux and everything to do with Nux. Because Nux is literally, hey, we spent the last three movies showing you crazy, marauding bandits dressing in weird ways and being essentially murder happy. What is the psychology there? How do, how can you become this and have it make sense? And Nux illustrates that. Nux not only shows you how a normal human being can become a war boy, but he makes you empathize with why he did it and why he is the way he is. And that is an amazing magic trick that they pull with him, I think. And, and not only that. Well, that in... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, now we're getting into the quote-unquote subtext of the movie, which in true Mad Max fashion, it yells at you from the very beginning. Yes. Well, I, I was just going to say, Nux, um, every single one of his lines is world building in some way. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend watching this movie with subtitles on because you will miss things. You will absolutely miss things. Every yeah, I'm one so glad. Sorry, I'm so glad I did watch it with. Well, I wasn't watching it with subtitles. And then I turned it on at the very end with Nux's last line because I couldn't understand what he said. And then when I turned it on and saw what he said, which is witness me, which takes on a whole new, I mean, it's, it's the same meaning, but a different meaning. Oh, and, yeah. and suddenly, and suddenly I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> so. Well, and, and the way they explain these like kind of complex topics with single lines, I, I didn't even notice until watching it just for this show uh, with subtitles on. He, he calls himself a black thumb which is meant to be the same as a green thumb, someone who's good at gardens, except for it's black from the oil of an engine. Holy really cool shit. Terminology. Yeah. Like two, two words, and he just explained this complex idea of their world and uh, something that apparently they use in conversation all the time. Oh, yeah, he's a black thumb. Uh, I, love, I love that kind of stuff. He explains an entire religion and in his entire upbringing in like less than seven sentences across the movie. Yeah, well, particularly the the first scene of him being vulnerable. There's the, there's a line in particular that caught me where he said something like, "The gates were opened to me three times and I failed every time," or and just suddenly the the pathos changes entirely in the single line about him, and that only compounds when he mentions Larry and Barry. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and again, that's just. Good shorthand for radiation poisoning and you know tumors that are killing these guys off and 
Well, he mentions uh, he mentions the night fevers. I think is what he calls them. Mm-hmm. They never explain what the night fevers are, but all you need to know is here that that's a thing. And you're like, you can your brain fills in the pieces like probably all the war boys. If that he calls it the night fevers, means that this is a common thing, right? So. Yeah, I that that's the stuff that really threw me over the top for that for that movie being just the best. Not, not even just for Mad Max, just the best in filmmaking possible. That you just you assume I'm not stupid. You write stuff in that I maybe don't even catch the first time, but you don't have to because you could watch this movie with the sound off and still get somewhere by the end of the movie. No problem. Yep. Yeah, and then then another thing I want to add. And I only want to like make a slight comment of this because I honestly don't think I'm intelligent enough to talk about what I'm about to say, but it has to be mentioned, which is the whole fact that Fury Road is easily, very easily analyzed as a feminist work. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that is, to me, one of the most fascinating and cool things about it that I also don't feel qualified to talk about. <laughs> so... No, that is a big reason I want to show this movie to my mom, is I think she would love that, but she would hate all the violence. It's like, but that's kind of the point. For anyone who doesn't know, one of the main ideas at play in Mad Max is essentially that, well, men and this very masculine cult thing going on with Morton Joe are representative of essentially what killed the world, as in who killed the world, and the uh, Vuvalena, I, I forgot what the term is, but this basically progressive kind of futuristic naturey matriarchy is more our way forward into healing but it's mad max so they still have sniper rifles and motorcycles so <laughs> because this is still a hell world you don't get to be nice just yet yeah exactly you got to you got to fight for your right to party um yeah and anyway, i just wanted to mention that because like i feel like not would be a disservice to the film <laughs> Absolutely. And I also like to point out, um, George Miller doesn't have any daughters. He has four sons. So he didn't do this out of like any kind of familial push. Apparently he just, over the course of his life, landed on, ah, hell yeah, dude, let's make Mad Max feminist. And do you guys remember how much that pissed off the the YouTube nerds? Yeah, oh, no, I, I remember no, all I totally the rage about like, this movie. Because like my, my favorite, uh, my three favorite reviewers at the time, only one of them mentioned it. And he made an offhand comment about how happy he was that it was going to piss off all the people who, you know, you don't want in your community anyway. Right. So, no, I, so I remember I the huge it. rage. And it's like, how, why? Just enjoy this. Just enjoy the sheer beauty that is this movie. And no, that's, that's kind of let the subtle ideas, in, you know, just work their way into your brain. Just, just, just let, let it sit. Hey, look, Doof Guy's back. He's, he's got a flaming guitar. Isn't that cool? Look, it looks uh, kind of like a penis. Yeah, I don't know, man. The way I'm the way I'm sitting here now and literally thinking now that if I showed someone Mad Max and they were uh, offended by the the feminist like tones, I'd be like, well, I don't want you in the Mad Max community anyway. Then bye. I won't be friends with you. This, I mean, if this movie offends you, what is wrong with you? Well, and it because it's not overt with it at all. It's just saying like, I don't know if you put a bunch of survivalists out there with guns, maybe they're gonna kill people. <laughs> Oh, this is it was not movie. it was not obvious i think fear road's the strongest film easily and i and while yeah. i and while i feel it's a very difficult thing to have this and then do more movies afterwards i still really want to see what george miller has left because to, to spend 30 years in between films and then come out with fear road in my opinion easily the best fourth movie in any franchise ever i feel confident in that statement 
So. Oh yeah, no, not no contest. Yeah, uh, if I if I had to recommend like an action movie, I feel like most people would kind of cater towards like Die Hard or you know the the kind of standouts across the genre. And while I would never say no to that. If if I was making a suggestion, if you've never watched an action movie, if action isn't your thing, if you find them too complicated or too overdone or whatever, this is the movie to enter on because it is first and foremost an art piece, and that's mm-hmm. a wild thing to say about an action movie. I I actually have a question for you two guys. Something that popped in my head while watching these movies. So Ulrich and I have to watch Michael Bay movies for something we're doing in the future. Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's uh, it's called The Road to Bayham. We're going to do a director smackdown and find the most quintessential Michael Bay movie. But it means we have to go back and watch all his films. And while watching Bad Boys 2, I got very drunk. But I also had this <laughs> thought of like, I don't like car chases in action films. Mm. They're my least they're my least favorite part of any action film. They tend to bore me. The only at the time, the only car chase I could think of that I liked was the one in the raid too, but that's because that's also a martial arts choreography thing going on during that. Right. Right. I love all the car scenes in the Mad Max movies, especially the entire protracted movie that is Fury Road, but I don't really think of them as car chases. Like they fit like a whole different niche in my brain. And I can't really figure out why, like is, are these more the exception to the rule? Like I don't like car chases, but these are so good that I like them anyway. Or are they like, all right, car chases can be this good, and all the other ones just are not as this good. Like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> these are war movies. These are mm. battles and skirmishes being fought with cars. Because a car chase is typically, you know, one car chases the other. They try and outmaneuver each other. They smash through things. They crash through things. But that's about it. These movies have guys leaping at each other, throwing things at each other, shooting each other, blowing each other up, flipping each other over. This is an ongoing skirmish. This is a literal mounted, you know, combat. It just happens to be in cars. Yes, cars are, these are knights, and they're the cars. I mean, I think Miller leans into that with, you know, the whole Valhalla ride shiny and chrome stuff with uh, the war boys and everything. Is mm. No, they're recognizing these are savage raiders on horseback. That's and the fact that they, not, they have this connection to their car. That they, you know, this is my car, and you know, you've got lancers on the back. They literally call them lancers who ride on the back of your mount. It seems really obvious now that you put it out that way, but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. <laughs> I like, I like that take a lot, and and maybe this is just a piggyback on it more than a separate thought or idea. Um, are you guys familiar with Wallace and Gromit at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I've watched a handful of them. So there's uh, one of their movies is called The Wrong Trousers, and it's Wallace and Gromit versus a very naughty penguin. And that there's a there's a final scene in that movie that could be taught in action filmmaking schools. And it's the idea of actions begetting other actions and actions changing the course of the action. So. Um, Axel, to your point, I think that the reason you don't like most car chase scenes is because they're just fast travel. Like the point of them is just to get somewhere quickly and to add a little um, tenseness to that. Whereas Mad Max specifically is all about the idea of each thing cascading into the next thing. And the only finale that is possible is a full crash. 
you're not arriving anywhere except for you're arriving at your crash scene. And I think that's what makes them so much more engaging is it's it's Mad Max against the eventuality of crashing because he does crash across these movies. Yeah. Hmm. He crashes I mean, out hard. Literally, what, what that made me think of is I remember, uh, do you guys know the, the YouTube channel Cinefix? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they do like the best top tens anywhere. But oh, they yeah, had, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a, uh, they, a one a few years back that was like anatomy of an action scene mm-hmm. or something like that. And they were picking apart a scene from Fury Road, which is the scene right before the pregnant wife gets run over. Yeah. And they talk about how one thing that Mad Max Fury Road does really well is when you have these big, crazy scenes that have a lot of moving parts, it's very easy to get lost in gestalt or gestalt, which is you don't want to do that, generally speaking. So what Fury Road does is focuses on a chain of causality, an individual chain of causality, and shows you it in motion. Like they talk about how, all right, it starts off. This guy comes up, he shoots a harpoon. The harpoon lands in the wheel that Max is driving. Then he then he pulls back because it landed. That pulls the wheel up. That pins, you know, Max's arm. That results in Furiosa putting the like the point is that you can trace it like very easily so that yep. the whole scene stands out in your head. You remember the component parts. And and even if you don't remember every individual action, every action is logical and has a equal and opposite counter reaction. Like it's literally just science. Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have to think on that. Like, uh, I like both of those ideas. It literally was just something that popped in my head while I, while I was watching. I, I think I was, I don't know which one of them I was watching, but it, it popped in my head and I was like, I, I don't, I don't have any way to explain this. Maybe they do. So, but yeah. Cause they, they also, they never make a point of the speed of the cars, right? Like it's not, this car is so much faster than that car, so they're going to be able to overtake them because you're not going fast enough. It's never about the the actual speed. It's always about the the uh, what's going to happen if people get into the right position. Like it's almost like chess, almost. I guess. Actually, you know what's really funny the about that? And this, and this thought. Be... Well, no, this thought crossed my mind too because the speed. They only show the speed a couple times. It's like usually forty or fifty. But no matter how fast, even with the interceptor. That idea you said of the crash is inevitable, I think that applies here as well because no matter how fast you're going, the people following you in, in the scene, they're going to catch up. That is inevitable. Right. Like, we had five minutes head start and we have this crazy V8 engine, but that war party is going to catch up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's just that it, it makes everything feel like you don't know what's going to happen. Like you literally are just waiting for the outcome because they're not going anywhere, right? Like they don't have a final destination in Fury Road. I mean, the or across Mad Max, Fury Road does have a final destination, but uh, they're just Max racing. Doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, Max I think, is racing death. You could argue <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I think that's what makes those those scenes so so engaging. And then Fury Road just knows how to up the stakes every time. Like every chase is bigger. We, we're we're way over time. I do yes. want to I do want to say though that uh, we don't even have time to talk into the utter badassery that is Charlize Theron's Furiosa, who is yeah so good. But <laughs> but yeah, we've gone yeah, way over. This. So so let's just uh, I think if if everyone agrees, let's just each have a little wrap up conclusion about the Mad Max, about your concluding thoughts essentially, mm-hmm. and. Uh, First, give the mic to you, Seth. Um, yeah, important cinema. This is why I picked it. Um, 
I think that you can learn something from every single one of these movies. If I had to rate them, it's Fury Road number one, Road Warrior number two, Mad Max number three, Thunderdome number four, but they're only separated by mere points. This would be a fun game to watch if they were competing against each other, but there's a, a clear winner here and uh, a reason why I picked this series and why I love it so much. And I appreciate you guys indulging me in uh, running down all these rabbit holes that are within the desert of this Mad Max world. Well, you know, I feel like there's, as I said, there's still a whole lot more we could talk about. So maybe oh. we find an excuse to shove it in during another conversation. I'm sure we'll talk about it during the Fast and the Furious thing because that's a lot of car chases, and I'll have I'll have thoughts probably. That's a good <laughs> spot for it. <laughs> yeah. So, so my concluding thoughts are, like I said, I, I had not actually really engaged with the franchise as a whole before last weekend, and now I adore it, and I want to know more about it. And when it comes to like franchises that have an impact. The fact that I live in a post-Thunderdome world, like I was born after Thunderdome came out, so I live in a post-Mad Max as a franchise world, then going back and seeing, like, I can see genres that basically exist because of this. And I I really like Seth's explanation that it's, it's not that Road Warrior did it first, it's that Road Warrior, like brought all the pieces together and made it the the thing that everyone suddenly is pulling it off of. I don't know what the right terminology for that is, but I loved your argument about it. So yeah, I think this is super important franchise. I am really glad that the most recent one is also like the best one because George Miller is just, just getting better at just using his skills. And I can't wait to see like what other stuff he figures out to do with the next one. Yeah. Uh, my closing thoughts are basically copy-paste what Seth said in ranking and just general opinion. Same ranking is, for me. Fucking incredible franchise. This has been an incredible conversation. And no, I'm already workshopping in my head ways that I can make another episode where we come back and talk even more about Mad Max just because I want to. <laughs> All right. There are things well, that... left unsaid that need to be said. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I agree. We'll we'll find an excuse because I'm now way more into this franchise than I thought I would be. So, but uh, that brings us to the end of our our schedule discussion. And so at this point, we'd like to first of all thank Seth again for coming to talk to us, and give him the special soapbox where you can plug whatever you want to plug. Oh hey, thank you. I'll I'll be quick because I was uh, verbose across the podcast. Um, like I said at the beginning, I'm the host of the Film Rescue Show. Uh, Ulrich and Axel have both been on the show before. Uh, can't wait until they come back. Basically, we take a movie that was good, average, subpar, absolutely terrible, and we kind of create a writer's room and pitch uh, different or new or better versions of what that movie could have been. Um, every single week, it's a, it's a great time. We talk to new guests all the time. We're always open to guests. You can check that out on all of your streaming platforms. That's the Film Rescue Show. Uh, also, that's under the um, umbrella of Montressor Media, which is my media company. We run a bunch of podcasts and YouTube shows and and short film stuff under that. So if you're interested in any of that, you can just Google Montressor Media. Same spelling as the moon from Treasure Planet. <laughs> I approve. <laughs> you don't need my approval, but I approve anyway. <laughs> so... All right. Well, then that brings us to before we go, we're each going to give you, the listener, a suggestion of the week. I'm Since I'm leading us in this, I'm going to kick us off real quick so Seth can see how this is done. Uh, my suggestion of the week is a little YouTube show called Hell of a Boss. It is made by Vivsy Pop, who's been kind of a known name in animation for the last, like, I don't know, seven years at this point. And she has a very unique style. 
She makes also has been Hotel and Bad Luck Jack and stuff like that. But Hello Boss is a series about a bunch of imps in hell who are professional assassins who kill the living for, for money. And it's a lot of adult humor, but it's really funny. And it's like 10 minutes a piece. Just go check them out. Mark? Yeah, so if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that this year has basically been an ongoing adventure of find a cartoon that I can watch with my daughter that's not terrible. Mm. And the most recent discovery was Owl House, The Owl House, which only popped up on my radar because Alex Hirsch was a big part of it. And if you like Gravity Falls, you're going to love this. This is yes. a really, really good, really, really funny show that is, it starts so simple and unassuming and then just builds into an epicness world building, holy fuck, that it kind of took me a surprise. So first I watched it, like, oh, this is, this is really funny. I don't think this is much, but this is funny. And then halfway through, like, oh, they're doing some big shit here. And also, they're doing some great representation for kids that, as an adult, are like, oh, I know where this is going. Those two are totally going to, you know, hook up. But as a kid, I thought that this would be really kind of cool and positive. And I can't say enough positive things about this show. I will just it on, uh, it on. It's on Disney Plus right now. Disney it's on Disney okay. Plus. And all I will say is I feel like this is enough of a rubber seal gold sticker. If you like Gravity Falls, you're going to like this. All it's right. So much of the same. All right, Seth, you got a suggestion for the listeners? Absolutely. So um, in my personal life, I've been watching through Naruto because I've been stuck in my house since March. However, <laughs> that's not my suggestion. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I could not in good faith suggest that on this <laughs> podcast, uh, as much as I am enjoying it and hating it th- at the same time. My <laughs> suggestion, however, is a show that I discovered that I did not know was a show that is based off a movie that I really love by Taika Waititi, and it's called What We Do in the Shadows. Um, yes. I have been, I don't want to say binging, uh, as much as like religiously watching only two episodes at a time so that I can fully enjoy them. Um, I think there's two seasons as of right now. Uh, They're both on Hulu. That show is a laugh a minute. (laughs) It is fantastic. Uh, I I love absurdism. Uh, So it's kind of like right up my alley. Yeah, it's perfect. What we do in the shadows. If you like vampires, vampire lore and situational comedies, it's basically what if the office were a show about vampires except for not boring (laughs) oh i just like taika watiti by the way as someone who's spending a lot of time on dating apps most girls say on their profiles and i quote we'll get along if you like the office and i don't get it so (laughs) normally make what you do in the shadows your thing and there you go (laughs) all right cool well then uh that brings us to the end and as far as i know then uh Thank, I'm going to say it like another time, just to really write that it was a great conversation. Thanks for coming on talking with us, Seth. I appreciate you guys having me. It's been a great time. All right, Ulrich, take us out. All right, well, we'll thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do whatever it is that the particular source you're listening to us on asks you to do to rec- so that they recognize us as an actual thing because that is literally the life or death of podcast. And we are currently on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. We're looking into three more that were suggested to Ulrich. I don't know if we're going to follow through with them, but it depends on what research we find. But if there are any specifically you would like us to be on that are more convenient for you, tell us what they are and we'll look into them too. 
As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable. <laughs>